0: We're doing a special little series and it kind of depends on how far we make it by 40 minutes, whether it's going to be another week or if this is the last week of it. But really our heart is to help bring understanding as to why we're going to Nepal and why we're making such a big deal about the unreached people groups of the world. Um, There will be a season when Nepal isn't the only thing you hear about around here, when, when there's other nations of focus that are brought before us. It's just, we're kind of in this infant stage, and this is where God's taken us. But certainly why we have a passion and a care and a laser focus on some of these unreached people in the persecuted churches, which are most often among the unreached people groups And so we've taken a few weeks. If you didn't listen to last week's message, please do yourself and us a favor in this series and listen to last week's message and listen to the week before where the Nepal team shared. And it'll help bring uh, clarity and understanding regarding uh, the unreached uh, people groups and why over there? Why are we doing what we do there in the nation in Nepal? So last week... We looked at the great commission. We looked at the authority that Jesus was given as he lived a perfect life, died the death for sinners, rose from the dead on the third day, vindicating all of his claims to be absolute deity and ascending into heaven, sitting down at the right hand of the father, showing that his sacrifice was indeed uh, acceptable and his life lived was indeed pure and that before he ascended, he said, I've got a job and a task for you, given through my authority. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. As you baptize them, I want you to teach them all the things that I've commanded you. We looked last week that that commission, even as, as pre-New Testament, we look clear back at the promise to Abraham, that through Abraham's seed Jesus, Galatians tells us, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so we looked at that word nation. So if we're supposed to preach the gospel to all nations, and if through Abraham's seed Jesus, all the nations would be blessed, what is our current state of gospel advancement? And if you want to go ahead and take us, Olivia, to uh, the unreached people group slide, uh, then, then we'll see it's the circle with a bunch of circles uh, inside of it there. Uh, and so we looked at, uh, there's a few different definitions of nations, but among many of the missions group, it's broken down into language barriers and even some certain familial groups. And so it's been determined that if you look at the blue circle on the right, there's about 7.2 billion people in the world. And if within that world of billions of people, there's about 11,495 people groups, all right? And then there's been studies done by one organization that's really done a great job, the Joshua Project and uh, Operation World. Uh, these guys are doing an amazing job of just investigating and researching these people groups. And they're finding out that among the blue world there, there's a, nearly half that number 2.4 billion people are considered unreached with the gospel. That means that 2% or less of the population are evangelical Christians or disciples of Jesus. And so that means that out of the whole world, nearly half, about the size of that orange circle there, are um, unreached people groups, 6,827 People groups, languages, cultures, families, tribes that are still unreached with the gospel. And then the the research is that within that, nearly half of that, kind of breaks down nicely, right? Uh, Are considered unengaged, unreached people groups. That's about a quarter of the world's population, 0.25 billion people, 3,000 people groups there, that um, there is currently... Zero active engagement to take Jesus there. There's nothing. Okay. Now if we can go over to that one that you had before. It's a map of the world there, Olivia, that has the the green and the yellow and the red. Um, This kind of shows us where those unreached people groups are. It's not America. It's not South America, though there are little pockets within there. But it's primarily in what is called the 1040 window. A lot of that uh, Horn of Africa, North Africa, uh, you're looking at uh, West Asia, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia that are uh, these unengaged, um, most of that unengaged people groups are uh, within that window. And of course, there at the north of India is where Nepal is uh, and, and where our nation of focus is as a church. And so that gives us a little bit of an idea of the current state of kingdom advance, 2,000 years since Jesus has said, go unto all the world. There's been a lot of the world that's been reached. And isn't that incredible? I mean, look at where the United States is. It is a long ways away from Israel, from Jerusalem. I've got great stories of you know, missionaries going on the Oregon Trail and reaching even the Native Americans up in southern Washington, northern Oregon, and some wonderful things like that. And yet, so much of the world is still unreached, and that may be because it's illegal to go in there, or Christians are martyred, or you're arrested if you go, uh, you're tortured if you go there. It's, it's hot, it's dry, it's high, it's cold, uh, you know, you have to be tactical, um, you, you know, there's, there's danger, there's mountains, there's rivers, and it just can be difficult. And so in 2000 years, that is the current state of kingdom advance. now so I encourage you, uh, we could do a whole another sermon on that, but I'm not going to, you got to listen to last week. And a lot of this is familiar. Some of you can preach this and I hope you do. Um, but we're going to get into where Nepal is. And uh, we're having issues loading on my phone, so a little bit Olivia is going to help me out. There was a map of Nepal there, Olivia, that has a lot of little dots on it. And it tells the number of people groups within Nepal. And it just shows us, uh, there's Nepal, it's north of India, south of Tibet, south of China. And there are 250 people groups in Nepal. And only nine of them, or eight of them, have been reached with the gospel uh, all those red dots uh, signify uh, the unreached there of Nepal, and so we 're going to look today at the social and spiritual implications of Nepal being unreached and why this has impacted our church and why we still go there at great cost, at great sacrifice at great sufferings and at at great. Preaching. And so to do that, um, we're going to look at two of the main religions that are in Nepal right now and what are the effects of that on the culture of Nepal. And so, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. But I want to tell you a story that goes back before. This story here in Athens with Paul, I read about it in a book called, uh, let's see here if I can find it in my notes, uh, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson, and the story goes that in Athens, there on Mars Hill, very a center of philosophy and really a center of idolatry. A couple hundred years before Paul went there, a plague broke out. People were dying all throughout Greece, especially in Athens. And as prayers went up to the many gods of the Athenians, nothing was happening. And so it was determined by the council of philosophers that we must be praying, we must be missing the God that we should be praying to. We need to determine who we're missing, who we're not praying to, to take this plague away. And so a man named, I'm going to call him Nick, uh, a man named Nick who was uh, a respected man in the community was brought in to help figure out what God are we not praying to? Who are we missing? And Nick said, you know, I know a Cretan, a man from the island of Crete named Epimendes. He's a prophet and I bet he knows what God we're missing I bet he knows who we should be praying to. And the council said, hey, we got no other options. People are dying like crazy around here. Go get him. So Nick goes to the island. He gets Epimendes, and he brings him back. And as the council begins to butter Epimendes up and just talk about how honored they are to have him there, Epimendes interrupts and he says, guys, there's no need to thank me. I'm a minister of this, this God that I believe you're missing out on. And, and he's told me what you're supposed to do. You need to go and you need to get some flocks of sheep. You need to get black sheep, white sheep, speckled, you need to bring them up here and, and you need to let them about fast for about a day. Get really hungry. And you need to bring them up to Mars Hill where this great uh, dome is, where this great uh, theater is and you need to set them loose among all of the idols. And you need to uh, let them out in the morning when they're really hungry. And wherever they sit down, uh, that's the God that you need to pray towards. And he said, I'm just going to kind of put this little uh, little uh, symbol here that uh, if they're going to sit down in this area, then then it's this unknown God that I'm going to uh, preach to you today. I'm going to share with you. And so they let the goats go in the morning and the goats uh, went over and they went in this certain area and they sat down in this area uh, to the astonishment of... Of the council, because they were hungry sheep, they should have been devouring all of the green grass in the area. but they went and they sat in the region of this, this symbol to the unknown God. And so they realized that whoever it is that Epimendes tells us about, we need to listen. And so Epimendes says, wherever the sheep sat, you need to build altars where they're at. They had stonemasons brought in that day to build up uh, some altars. You need to build up altars right there. You need to slaughter the lambs there. And you need to inscribe uh, upon these altars, Agnosto Deo, or Theo, uh, to the unknown God. And so they did just that, and the plague was stopped And so there was this time there in Athens that the people would go and bring garlands and offerings and they would bring them to the different little pillars there where the sheep had sat down, then they were sacrificed, the unknown God was thought of and worshipped and and for years they would bring just special offerings to that God until time went by. And as time went by, a couple of the councilmen, they were old men now, And they were walking and talking and they came upon these different little shrines and they realized that they were overgrown and destitute and that they'd forgotten about this unknown God. And they said, what can we do to help people remember what had taken place when the plague was was taken away from us? And one of the councilmen says, I think we need to at least preserve one of these We need to preserve one of these little altars and we need to bring the mortar men in and we need to have them fix it all up and polish it and make it good so that when centuries go by, someone will come by this place and go, what's up with this unknown God? And that they would remember such a thing. This is an actual story written in the third century uh, by Diogenes Laertius, who was a Greek author, very well respected. Now that kind of brings us to Acts chapter 17 verses 16 that Paul is in Athens and as he's waiting for the council his spirit is provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Epimenides once said that gods must be easier to find than men in Athens. It was also said that who knows how many Proverbs men have coined about Athens, the city glutted with gods. You might as well haul rock to a quarry as bring another god into our city. And so Paul there notices that there are gods everywhere. There are busts everywhere. There are shrines and idols and images everywhere. And his spirit is provoked within him. This city is given over to idols Therefore, he reasoned, I hope you're following along with me, Acts chapter 17, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others says, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowledge, him I proclaim to you. So the book Eternity in Our Hearts, it basically goes through, whether it's Athens or Nepal or India, it goes through stories of God preparing the way in people's hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus. He's putting signs and wonders in front of them so that it would testify and bring occasion to tell of Jesus. And that's what happens here. They know that there is an unknown God. There's this history that they have. There's this shrine that's preserved. The history tells them that there was one that was able to move the plague and take it away. And they even knew, the history tells us, that he was greater than these other gods. And so here Paul comes and he sees something that's culturally relevant to them. And he says, I'm going to preach the gospel from your culture. And so he references the unknown god. And he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor does he worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Something incredible was that this Dionysius, it's believed, was later the first pastor in Athens. And his name comes from Dionysius, a Greek god whose theology included a death and resurrection concept. Now what Paul was doing there in Athens was what the Lord prophesied over his life would happen in Acts 26. Paul talks about it. He says that I will open your eyes, Paul, in order to turn the Gentiles and open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light listen to this the ministry to the gentiles is to turn them from darkness to light from the power of satan to god that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me that is our ministry to these unreached people groups that we would go and preach the gospel that the lord would open up their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. That's the ministry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he went down into uh, the Galilean region. It was prophesied in Isaiah that the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. I'm telling you guys, this is the similar ministry that we have in Nepal. It's a similar type of people that when those that bus full of those Prineville lights... Or that that hill that's, that, that men are cresting over, taking the gospel up into the Himalayas, that light is dawning as the presence of the Holy Spirit in the preachers goes there. And those people who dwell in darkness, they see a great light as love is tangibly offered and felt, as the gospel is preached. Now, we're going to look at how Nepal is so much like Athens today. It's like Athens in two different ways. Number one, in the the religion of Hinduism. And so this touches on the urgent spiritual need of the Nepalese. Looks like it's probably going to be next week that we look at the urgent physical need of the Nepalese that directly flows from their urgent spiritual need. We have uh, the first spiritual need is within the religion of Hinduism. And if you can go ahead and click us and start us off there, Olivia, at the, uh, the Hindu woman praying. Hinduism is the largest religion in Nepal, it's 82.5%. If we can look at the, uh, the chart there, might be able to kick us off now. Okay, great. 82.5% of, uh, of the nation is, hin- is Hindu. Hinduism is a wellspring of New Age thinking. It's where much of the New Age thinking in our nation comes from. Hinduism is comfortable with evolutionary thinking. As modern science emphasizes physical evolution, Hinduism emphasizes spiritual evolution. As modern psychology emphasizes basic goodness and unlimited potential of the human nature, so does Hinduism emphasize man's essential divinity. Modern science and philosophy says that truth is relative. In the same way, Hinduism tolerates many contradictory religious beliefs. Now, though there are some core beliefs common among virtually all Hindus, there's really no Hindu orthodoxy. In other words, there's no hard and fast doctrine that Hindus believe, that they go back and refer to What truth is. It's actually a family of gradually developing beliefs and notions and practices. And a lot of it comes from the Vedas, which are four collections of writings written from about 1500 to 500 BC. And they kind of form that base of Hindu belief, and yet they're open for interpretation. The Vedas describe a number of different gods who really personify different elements of the world and phenomena like storms and fires. Prayers and sacrifices are to be offered to these gods. But really, Hinduism has gone even further to where you can go past worshiping gods and you need to begin stepping into this ultimate reality that is beyond our comprehension, something you've got to tap into through meditation, and that ultimate reality is called the Brahman. The Brahman. Kind of the second half of those original writings, the Vedas, also teaches that at the core of our being... We are identical with that Brahma. We are identical with that ultimate reality. And while that is not um, a person, that Brahma, it's personified in a lot of the writings. Something you've got to tap into. A popular saying in Hinduism is Atman is Brahman. Or all living things are Brahman in their innermost core. And so what this does is, instead of religious sacrifice or intuitive knowledge, you move beyond that as being important and you just kind of tap into this being at one with all things. That this material world, including our own conscience personalities, it's all less than fully real. You got to tap into what's going on around you in this Brahman and everything Uh, being one. With that, two major streams of Hinduism were formed and different practices were developed. There's this more orthodox, intellectual, and philosophical stream. Uh, It emphasizes the oneness of all things. And then there's another stream that really emphasizes a personal devotion to a God. Now, these both kind of come from the same roots, but they're so different that it's as if they're almost different religions. Because there's no core scripture or, or canon or any authority to sit upon, things have just kind of gone like this to almost anything goes and just pick your own path. There are some 330 million gods and goddesses in Hinduism. And somehow, uh, I'm hopping way ahead. There we go. There are some 330 million gods and goddesses uh, within Hinduism. That you can pick which ones you want to be loyal to. Within these gods, there's actually a trinity. Let me hop back. There's a trinity of gods. There's Brahma, the creator. Vishnu in the middle, who is the preserver. And then one that we've been encountering a lot there among the worshipers in Nepal, Shiva on the right, who is the destroyer. In India, there are many temples to Shiva and many temples and places and shrines for worship to one of these 330 million gods and goddesses. Now, some of the foundational Hindu beliefs are two core beliefs of Hindus. First of all, what they believe about the source of evil and suffering, and second of all, what they believe about reincarnation. Okay? The first of these core beliefs is the doctrine of karma, okay? Karma means action, and we're going to hear this later in Buddhism as we study Buddhism. But karma means action, but it goes deeper than that, and it really speaks of the results of action. In other words, wherever your life is at right now, it is the result of either good or bad action in the past. Some believe that karma implies strict fatalism or determinism and that basically there's nothing you can do, you just resign yourself to living out your karma. But most believe that your present is determined by your past and your future is determined by your present, so you must act in a way that is going to affect your future. That's the first of the core beliefs is karma. The second is is what is called reincarnation or the transmigration of souls or samsara. We're going to talk about samsara and Hinduism in just a little bit, but this reincarnation basically says that you are reborn in this world in another body, whether it's human or otherwise, and the nature of your rebirth is affected and a result of your past actions in that previous life. Most of us know that. That's nothing new. We kind of get that version of reincarnation. Closely associated, though, with the doctrine of reincarnation is the ahishma, or don't injure anything living. It's one of the core moral values of Hinduism. Protecting life, it's the main reason why Hindus... Are uh, vegetarian. See what we got going on there. The next big association with reincarnation is what is the caste system. According to the Hindu teaching, there are four basic castes or social classes. Some of you are familiar with kind of the caste system, but within the four caste system or social classes, there are thousands of different people groups within those systems. Each has its own rules and its own obligations, and that affects nearly every facet of their life. Now, the first and the highest class are the Brahmins or the priests. That's the best class, man. You have been reincarnated into a great class. That doesn't even necessarily mean that you have to act like a priest. You're just in the family of priests. In fact, some of our uh, guides uh, with the Footstool Project are Brahmins. Uh, they're, they're Christians, but they're from the caste of Brahmins, and so they're wealthy and respected there in Nepal. Uh, second in rank are the Uh, warriors and rulers class, third are the merchants and farmers, and then finally, and really the lowest is the laboring class. Now, at the heart of the Hindu belief is that salvation is only possible for the top three castes. The the fourth caste has no option of advancement. Uh, There is no hope until through uh, governmental process that lower class was um, outlawed uh, to where we got to make it possible for these people to be able to make it out of this caste. Your caste is determined by your own personal karma, and so you're born into that, uh, that class because of the karma of past life. And so, similar to Buddhism, the chief aim of a Hindu is that they would be freed or released from this cycle of death and rebirth and reincarnation that is brought about by their works and their labor, their karma. It's called uh, liberation moksha, is that final release. And so with that, the different caste system, how are they saved out of this reincarnation, different caste system? system. What are their ways of salvation? Yoga is really the primary way of release. And this doesn't refer to you're going down to the gym and you're stretching out um, and you know you're you're working on your balance. However, you need to be very discerning because much of that type of yoga is is based in that and even tries to get you to be a part of that within uh, your workout, so there needs to be some discernment there. But there's actually different kinds of yoga uh, within the uh, Hindu religion. And they stream out of these four goals of life that are permissible for Hindus. First is a goal of pleasure or enjoyment. So how am I saved? I'm saved by seeking after pleasure and enjoyment, specifically love and sexual desire. This is the uh, first way to move forward with your karma and to work your way towards salvation. And of course, karma is uh is where kama sutra comes from and it's part of this worship and trying to work your way towards salvation through kama sutra the second main aim in their life towards salvation is wealth and success it's called artha the third out of four is your moral duty or your dharma giving your life towards uh, renouncing personal pleasure and power and to seek common good. And then the final aim of the Hindu is moksha, liberation from this cycle of lives in this material world and entrance into a nirvana. Uh, don't feel bad if you're confused. I've had to read through this stuff a whole bunch of times and barely have any sort of grip on it. So there's a lot of reading going on so that I can help explain it to you. Um, And so with that, there are these possible paths towards salvation, nirvana, or moksha. These paths to salvation. The first is your work of karma yoga. Karma yoga, very popular way of salvation, emphasizes the idea that liberation can be obtained by fulfilling your familial and social duties, overcoming the weight of bad karma that's been accrued. The second way of salvation is the jhana yoga. It's basically a way of knowledge that causes our bondage in the cycle of rebirths to stop. Um, There's a lot with that. but uh, The third and final way of salvation is devotion to bhakti yoga. Uh, which is really a more emotional and personal approach towards worship and religion and has its heart in having Brahmin priests involved in worship to where you're going to uh, these different uh, shrines and worship places in the holy place in Kathmandu and you're worshiping there, you're having priests be a part of uh, your worship experience. Uh, You are... um, Offering at the different altars, you are attending burials and cremations there at the Holy River, uh, and you are uh, participating in if I can hop down to the slide, uh, puja, which is a type of worship and sacrifice that uh, the priests these are all pictures taken from our different teammates at the Holy River box, uh, I can't remember. Some of these are so foreign words that it tries you hard. This Lakeview boy just can't do it. Uh, here we have uh, a family participating in Puja as a Brahma priest is uh, helping them uh, get close to their deity. And across the river there you have a woman being, um, she's dead and she's being prepared for cremation. And uh, that's a very popular form of, of Hinduism in Nepal. That is, it's very personal, emotional Priests are involved. You're going regularly to all of the different holy sites uh, there in Nepal. Now, that's, in a nutshell, uh, the, the basics of Hinduism. Keep in mind things like 330 million gods that you can worship or don't have to worship. Um, you can pick your own paths, choose your own ways, and, uh, and yet there's no assurance for salvation, or what's next for you. Keep in mind that all of this is works-based righteousness and a works-based hope, which if you've come to this church for very long and if you've been reading this leatherback book in your hand, it is the absolute contrary to salvation found in Jesus that tells us you can't work good enough on your best day. But Jesus came and he did. And if you simply trust in what he's done for you, turning from your sins, you come and trust in what he has done, his perfect life, his sacrificial substitutionary death, that he actually died for you and his blood washes away all of your iniquities and all of your sins, you will be saved. And there is assurance. And you won't come back as a worm or a cow or a laborer, Uh, caste system, you will be entered into eternal life as an adopted child of God, being in the presence of the one and only God for all of eternity. contrast it with as Christians we have an authoritative scripture that's been given by holy men who wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and that everything in it backs up everything else in it and it is a standard that we have. We're learning this in school ministry next week. It is a standard that we have for everything in our life and concerning our godliness. We then move on to the second uh, you know what I'm going to go through real quick a couple of disturbing things, disturbing observations uh, or observations that it could even be part of our culture that we're disturbed by it, uh, that we uh, gathered by being in, um, in Nepal and among a Hindu culture. Uh, by the way, the Hindus, uh, they are mostly in southern Nepal. And as you begin to get up into the Himalayas, you just start to watch less and less of a Hindu presence and more and more of a uh, Buddhist presence. And then as you keep going north up into the Himalayas, uh, even more and more of a Tibetan Buddhist uh, presence, which, spoiler alert, this is going to be in a four-week series because um, we're not even going to get into Buddhism today. Um, I want to keep my promise to you guys. And so, a couple of observations... Uh, I mentioned that one of the main gods of the Trinity that we are encountered with in Nepal and at Pashupati is Shiva. Okay? Now Shiva is the blue god that you so often see, many times has a whole bunch of arms, things like that. And uh, Shiva is one of the trinity of Hindu religion, one of the chief gods. And it's believed that he was tired of being part of this holy trinity and so he left heaven and came to earth and hid as a deer for hundreds of years, okay he just kind of did the deer thing, you know, ran around as a deer, and the other gods got angry with him, tracked him down on earth, they got in a big fight, and broke off one of his horns, and it was left here on earth, where it then grew into what is called a Shiva linga, okay uh, the Shiva linga. Um, uh, so I don't have the picture on my phone. So you're going to be looking, Olivia, for... Um, how do I put it in an Olivia sort of way? <laughs> you're going to be looking for a rock coming out of the ground like this. Okay, oh, uh, come, It's in different shrines, some of those pictures. So uh, And so what you have is there in this holy place... Uh, there you go. There's a few of those. We can poke through some of those there. Um, there in the holy place where there was the temple with the blue dude on the top uh, is kind of the main Shiva Linga. And it's basically a phallic symbol uh, that uh, the people will go and they'll offer offerings and they'll pray and they'll touch. And women that want to be uh, pregnant, they go and they'll touch these hoping to be impregnated. Uh, these things are all over Nepal, basically flowing out of Pashapati. And uh, they are... Um, in the middle of streets, like you're going in the middle of Kathmandu and there's like this phallic symbol, uh, Shiva Linga in the middle of the road that like cars go around there and people worship and it's got little flower petals left on it and pastes and things like that. And, uh, and so that is one of the shrine type objects that the Hindus often go and, and worship and, uh, and um, try to draw near to whatever God Uh, they worship. Something else that we've learned in our time there is that uh, most of you know the Hindus have the red dot on their forehead. And we can go and find that slide there, Olivia. You're doing so great, by the way. Uh, The red dot on the forehead is called the bindi. And it means the point or the drop uh, worn in the center of the forehead by uh, mostly women, but uh, even you'll see a lot of men wearing the dot and the bindi on their forehead. Now, in uh, a lot of your online research, you'll find that this is considered a third eye and a point of contact where creation begins and it really begins to open you up towards uh, all things, just coming into you and you going out and you're just a part of the Brahman. Okay, um, It's this point of contact. Uh, it's a sacred symbol of the cosmos and its unmanifested state, this third eye chakra and yet we have known through our time in Nepal that much as the shivalingas are this phallic symbol uh that the the uh blinga, the bindi uh is actually a, it's a symbol of female genitalia this entry point of female genitalia where the gods and the spirits and uh the everything that is part of everything enters into um, who you are, and so um, you know this is something that causes us to even pray even more as you see some of the um, just the graphic nature of uh, Hinduism there, and so uh, that takes us into Buddhism for next week. There's a, a little bit more to even say about Buddhism because it's really our our. Focus as we go towards northern Nepal and up into the Himalayas. Um, and so uh, I'd encourage you to get the book Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson uh, because there are incredible things happening among the Hindus right now. There are incredible signs and wonders taking place as preachers are going and praying and preparing ground for harvest. Uh, and, and there are Hindus being saved in a great number, um, in Kathmandu and down in India as well. And it kind of leads us back to just the opening story and the opening um, scripture out of the book of Acts that uh, Paul went through Athens and he was provoked in his spirit because he saw that this was a people given over to many gods. And I'm telling you, as we go through Nepal, it just kept coming up, Blaine and I just kept uh, referring to it as, as we would approach each other, whether we ca- caught up, if he caught up with me on the trail, uh, no, <laughs> it was really the other way around. But you know, we'd be going by uh, a Buddhist stupa, or you're going by a Shiva Linga right there, and you're going by all these worshipers, and next week is just, with the Buddhism, it's, it's fascinating with uh, all the different types of ways that they worship as well. And you, your spirit is provoked within you um, as they are given over to 330 million different gods. Might as well haul rock into a quarry as to try to take another god into uh, Kathmandu. And so that gives us ways to be praying as a church. That helps us see and understand the urgency that we get to these unreached people and even how the first part of our trip is, uh, is in Kathmandu. When we get there, we go and we spend time at Posh Potty where, uh, if we can go back to Pashpati there, where uh, people are being cremated. Uh, and as you look at the panorama picture that's there, uh, as you are farther up this holy river, you're part of the higher caste system and that's where you are cremated. As you go farther south in the river, uh, farther down the river, uh, you're obviously part of the laborer caste and, and you can't even afford wood for your cremation. So they'll pick up some of the wood that's thrown in after some of these other cremations and they'll cremate somebody there. And there's really no hope of advancement for those people. And uh, it's there at Pashapati that uh, David Platt was uh, spending his first trip and he's seeing all these people that are unreached and probably never heard the gospel and, and they're burning and they have no hope. Uh, you know. This, this hope of reaching their nirvana is so far off anyways. Um, and yet, you know, even biblically, our understanding is that there's no hope in and of your own works uh, to make it to salvation. It's through faith in Jesus and his finished work. So this gives us an understanding of how to pray for the Hindus, um, even though our focus is more Buddhist up in northern Nepal. And also, as we go to Badur very often, uh, there's Christians that are being saved in Badur that are coming out of Hinduism as it's still kind of not quite in the Himalaya mountains. And even there's some of my new friends that are part of the church and, and uh, in what capacity, I don't know, they're in Badur. And uh, you know they they got their pictures with their little red dot on their forehead and stuff. And you're just like, oh Lord, like, continue to bring just discipleship and transformation in these people that they wouldn't be like, Uh, you know the Israelites who you know went into the land of promise and there under every green tree were gods and the Lord says just don't even look at it don't even look at it lest you be tempted and just the prayer for these next two weeks is that the Buddhists and the Hindus would almost have a Mount Carmel experience through our ministry there that we would be able to say like Elijah the prophet like you need to decide this day which God you'll serve you know, uh, let's draw a line in the sand. Let's build an alt- altar and let's see which God is real. And as women who were blind are now able to see, as boys that were lame are now able to walk, that there would be those times as we're praying from this end of things that they would choose today which God they serve. And so that uh, helps us to pray. It helps us to do battle here on this end of things. And so let's do just that. Let's move towards prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you are going before the people, the nations, and you are working many signs and wonders. You're, you're preparing ground for the gospel to be heard, even, even hearing of, in places in India where the Hindus are just entrenched in very dark, demonic practices, uh, where there's terror Uh, through the different Hindu witch doctors and things. There's terror going on in villages, and yet as the name of Jesus comes in, there's freedom brought, and there's hope and joy. And so, Lord, we would just pray that even today there would be advancement in the kingdom of God and showing all of these other gods to be false and showing you to be true. And Lord, as... What's getting to be a good portion of this church has been to Pashapati, uh, has been to the holy river that uh, that is just putrid and disgusting and dirty and full of trash. And these people are putting their hope and having their ashes dumped into it and, and hopefully being reincarnated into a better life. Lord, we know where the better life is, that it's in you. And that's not some ignorant claim, Lord. You have brought an incredible validation to your word. It is something that we can die on. It is something that we can take to the bank. It is something that is the canon. It is the standard and the authority. And we're so thankful that we in America have something that we can put our hope in and we can have assurance of an eternity with our God. And so, Lord, even in Prineville, as there are Hindu people across the street There's a Hindu woman that that often sees us buying hotel rooms for the poor and the hurting. Lord, that you would open up doors of communication with the Hindus in Prineville. That we would be able to bring the hope of Jesus into a hopeless life. We pray that even today there would be breakthrough in India. There would be breakthrough in um, Nepal. And as so much of our New Age thinking in the United States just comes out of uh, the well of Hinduism, uh, Lord, we pray that there would just be a breakthrough, just a spiritual breakthrough in the minds of so many in even our community and in Central Oregon who are just tangled up in uh, just the New Age movement. And so it's today that we declare you to be our God. We declare Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. And that we will one day come to the Father through his work. We pray that you would break our hearts for the lost Hindus of this world. And those of us that have been and we've smelled the smoke coming from the cremated bodies. And we've, we've seen the filth and we've seen the stench. And we've seen just the lack of hope of those that are in a lower caste system pray that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours, and you would stir us on to going towards giving, towards praying, and towards encouraging outreach to the unreached in Nepal. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.